Well, it all started with a ransom note. There was a list of demands. When he went down to get all of his whites out of the dryer, they were gone. When you're in college, that's a really big deal because you only do laundry when you absolutely have to, which meant every pair of his underwear, every pair of his socks, and every undershirt that he owned had been taken out of the dryer, and all he was left with was a note listing the demands. There would be midnight calls, and there was a threat that if he got the authorities involved, he would never see his whites again, that they would be torn and burned. Now, not being privy to the prank, but, but being somebody who saw it all unfold, it was hilarious, and it was very funny to watch. And thus began the prank war that escalated from there. It all ended one night when a hidden camera was installed in someone's room. Looking back on it, I think this was probably illegal. But I'm fairly certain the statute of limitations has, has closed, so I'll share this story with you. And then I'll do some research this afternoon, and if not, we'll edit the message that's available online and the website. But after the prank war had gone back and forth a little bit, a hidden camera was installed. Now, this was long before the days where internet live streaming capabilities existed, where everybody could hop on a Zoom call or join in via Skype. But these were the days of AOL Instant Messenger. And I feel sorry for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, because you missed a glorious age in the internet. Whether it was AOL's Instant Messenger or Yahoo's Messenger, you could create a screen name, and then you could message somebody after you had their screen name, and there was all kinds of wonderful flirting opportunities and all kinds of frivolity that could that could happen as a result of these internet conversations. Well, a new screen name was created, and then messages started being sent to the victim of the, of the White's prank, and they let him know that they could see him. So what are you talking about? And then they began to describe exactly what was happening in his dorm room at the time. And it started freaking him out. He started thinking like there was a ghost or that this was somebody from the future who'd visited back in time because the, the camera was hidden really well. And it's not like today where they're streaming technologies. This camera still had to be wired. There were drills involved. And I'm not going to go into the whole process of how this of how this transpired. Again, not sure of the statute of limitations, but all I'm going to tell you is he was in the describing of great detail everything that was going on in the room. They almost induced a panic attack. Now, I didn't have the maturity level that I do now. In hindsight, this is really serious, and that could have been really bad. At the time, it was just hilarious. It was really funny to watch somebody freak out about the fact that they were being watched, and they didn't know how they were being watched watched. It took me back to a time growing up where I was convinced my mom had superpowers like Wanda from WandaVision or something where she had eyes in the back of her head and she could see everything that I was doing. In hindsight, I was just a stupid kid who was loud all the time. So anytime I was quiet for five to ten minutes, she figured out, oh, he's up to no good because he's being really quiet. I better go figure out what's going on before the house is blown up. But at the time, I didn't have that outlook. And at the time, I was convinced my mom had some kind of supernatural ability to know 
what was going on. Well, today we're not talking about a hidden camera, but we are going to talk about the fact that we have a God who does know everything and a God who sees everything. And how this isn't a cause for fear, but rather it's something that should encourage us and something that should invigorate us as we look at one of the most famous psalms that there is. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us this morning in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, where we see just the greatness of our God on full display, and yet that same God, that same Creator, being intimately involved and aware of what's going on in the life of you and I. It's fascinating, and it's encouraging, and it should be a cause for us to reflect and rejoice. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at in Psalm 139, where we start in verse 1, reading these words, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He said, God, you know everything. And you know everything about me. There are no secrets, which means God knows all the good about us. God knows all the good that we've done. He's seen us at our best. He's seen the things that we do that we don't talk about. God has seen all that we are. He's seen everything about us. Not that we have some creator who's created everything and then doesn't want anything to do with us. No, that God is intimately involved in the details of our lives. He says, you know what time I go to bed. You know what time I get up. God, you are involved in every aspect of my life, which means God's involved in every aspect of our life, which means God's involved in every aspect of our life. The secrets that we carry the regrets that haunt us, the choices that we don't want anyone to know about, the things that we have done and that we carry and we don't talk about, that there are no secrets with God, that God has seen us at our very best and God has seen us at our utmost worst. He's seen the best that we have to offer, and he's seen the worst that we have to offer. That's the God that we serve, that there are no secrets. God sees and knows everything. He is intimately aware of every aspect of our lives, and there are no secrets. The very creator of this universe, the things that we look at and we marvel about, he is aware of the intimate details of your life and of my life. And then he goes on, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He says, God, you know the words that I speak. Not only does God know everything about us, but God knows the words that we speak. And some of you are freaking out right now because actions, yeah, you're pretty good, but the words, that's what trips you up. And others of you are just relaxing and you're reflecting right now. You're like, I don't, I'm not really that worried about it. I have a filter. Like, I'm good. I'm not like Derek. I actually have a filter. I don't just say everything that comes onto my mind. 
And listen, some of you were here last week when you saw character assassination as Derek stood up here and he preached a wonderful message, but he made this statement in that message that I just need to clarify this morning. He said, I work at a church, so I should work around some really good influences. And then he looked at me, insinuating, insinuating that I am a bad influence on Derek. I was offended. So I just wanted to clear the record with you all today and just let you all know that that is not accurate and that Derek needs to work on his filter. So I'm just telling you all that today. But some of you might, some of you might feel good because you have a filter right now, unlike Derek. And you might be thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm good. Check, check that. Just a second. Because God not only knows what you do and he not only knows the words that you say, he knows the ones you don't. He knows the words that are stuck in that filter. Now, some of you have reached the glorious age where you don't care about a filter. I mean, it is gone. It's not that there's a couple holes in the filter. You just threw that thing out, and you just say whatever you want to, whenever you want to. But some of us haven't arrived at that point yet. And so we, we have filters in, in, our, in our minds, and, and there are things that we think that we do not say. But rest assured, God sees all that too. It's not just the things we actually say. God knows the ones that we don't. That's how intimately aware God is. And what's David's response to all this? Somebody who, by the way, had some pretty massive mess-ups in their life, who had some pretty monumental failures, who said some things that probably weren't the best. What's his response to all of this? He's comforted. He's comforted. And not only is God intimately aware, not only does God have knowledge of this, but God is actively involved. He's intimately aware of what's going on in our lives, and he's actively involved. And the picture that David writes here is this picture of God hemming him in, in protection, meaning God sees the attacks from behind that David cannot see, and God is busy protecting him. He, God sees the attacks in front of him that David also sees, and God is busy protecting him. God sees the attacks on the side, and God is at work protecting him. That God's not just aware of your life. God's not just aware of the choices that you've made. God is actively involved in your life. That is the value and that is the worth that you have with the God who created everything. That he knows you. And not only does he know about your life, he knows the intimate details about your life. And not only does he know the intimate details about your life, he knows the words that you speak and the words that you wouldn't dare speak, but the words that you think. He knows your mistakes. He knows your mess-ups. He knows your goodness. He knows all of those things, and He is still with you, and He is actively working in your life. That's the God that we serve, and that's the God who loves you. And then He says, I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. God, I know it, but I can't figure it out. It's so good that I, I just can't wrap my mind around it. And this is the point that we need to arrive at. We understand the more we discover and the more we understand about God means the more we realize we don't understand God. That the more we learn about God, the bigger the mystery of God grows because God is not on our level. 
He's so much higher than us that we cannot fully fathom all that God is and all the ways that he works. And David's here and he's just scratching his head and he's saying, God, I just reflect on this and I can't figure it out, but I love it. But I love it. And some of you just need to stop trying to figure out everything about God and just embrace the goodness and the grace and the love of God and just stop trying to, trying to make everything make sense because, spoiler alert, it's never going to because God is not bound to operate on your level of understanding. He's bigger and He's better and He's greater. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't search the Scriptures and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek answers. But what it does mean is at some point, enough is enough and we just need to stop and embrace the fact that we have a God who loves us and who's bigger than us and we better want it that way because I promise you, you do not want a God you can fully understand. You do not want a God who operates on your level. That is a really small God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God, you are everywhere. God, you're everywhere. If I go to heaven, obviously, God, you're there. You're obviously in heaven. If I descend down into the grave, God, even there, even in death, God, you are there. If I go to space, the wings of the the morning, if I go into space, if I go to the sun, 93 million miles away from earth, if I go 93 million miles away from earth, Even there, God, you are. If I go into the depths of the sea, into Mariana's Trench, that's 36,000 feet deep, even there, God, in the deepest depths that we have discovered in the sea, and so much of the sea remains undiscovered, even there, to the deepest depths that we can fathom, even there, God, you are. You're everywhere. You're everywhere. Everywhere, God, you are. And as if that's not impressive enough, which it is, that God is literally everywhere. And there's nowhere where we can outrun God. There's nowhere we can disappear from God. That God is literally everywhere. His presence is everywhere. As if that's not impressive enough. What's his response to all this? That God, if I go to heaven... God, if I descend to the grave, God, if I go to the sun 93 million miles away, God, if I go into the deepest depths that the ocean has to offer, that we've discovered, 36,000 feet, God, if I go any of those places, you are there, but not only is God there, and your hand, your hand holds me. It's not just that God's everywhere, but God is active in our lives. That His hand is holding you and I. Which means no matter what we face, no matter where we go, no matter what comes before us, no matter what challenge we discover, no matter what we have to encounter, we are not alone. God's right there. 
And I'm talking to some people that the last, the last year has been the most incredibly difficult year of your life. You've, you've been socially distanced. You, you haven't seen a lot of people. And in that time, you feel distant and you feel isolated and you feel alone. And you just scratch your head and you begin to wonder, seven, eight billion people in the world, what do I matter? What do I matter? Who, who really cares about me? What difference does my life really make? In the, in the span of all of this, what difference am I? Am I one person? What what worth do I have? What do I matter? And the answer is the worth and the value you have is the creator of the universe is right there with you in your life and in your story. And it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what you face. He's not leaving you and his hand is holding you through everything you could ever experience and more. God's got you. You are not alone. He's got you. And he goes on, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. He's like, God, you got night vision. You got night vision. There's no, there's, there's, even darkness doesn't cut it. I can't, I can't escape. I can't be covered. God, there's no way to not be seen by you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you understand your value? Do you understand your worth? That the creator of all of this, all these things that we see in our world that we just shake our heads and we marvel at, at the goodness of God that he created and it just blows our mind when we see the natural beauty. That that very same God, that very same creator took the time to knit you and I together. That's the God that we serve. That he knit us together. Now this might catch you by a surprise. But knitting is not a hobby of mine. I've, I've never knitted anything. In fact, frankly, I have no desire to knit anything. That's, I mean, if you want to knit things, that's fine. But I decided I would do some research this week on knitting. And after three pages of Google results, I'm like, I need to find something a lot more basic than what I've just read because I don't understand it all. And there's, there's all kinds of needles and stitches, and you could spend hours looking into days, really. So then I found a nice synopsis that I thought summed it up really well for us, and I want to share it with you in case, like me, you're not a, a knitting fan. And here's what it said. Knitting is a slow hobby. Really slow when you are a beginner. A fast knitter may knit a sweater in as little as 15 hours. Let me read that again in case you missed it. A fast knitter may knit a sweater in as little as 15 hours of actual knitting time. 
So that is a couple of weeks to a month in project time. Most of us take several months to a year to knit a sweater. Several months to a year to knit a sweater. There has to be a better hobby available to you. I promise. There just has to be. I don't get it. But if you, if you love knitting, that's, that's great. But understand this. It takes an expert 15 hours. Like the best of the best. 15 hours to knit a sweater which they say is weeks to a month in actual time. It takes most people who just pick up some knitting needles and some yarn or whatever you use to knit. I don't even know. It takes most of you like a year to knit together a sweater. And this is the level of involvement that God has in each and every one of us that we are being formed in our mother's womb and God has his fingerprints all over us. Every aspect of who we are, every aspect of the gifts and the talents and the abilities that we have, every aspect about what energizes us and what discourages us, God is molding us and he's making it so no two of us are the same, that each of us are unique. That's your value. That's your worth. That the creator of this universe saw it to bring you into existence and created you the way you are. And I know some of you, this is really hard to accept. And this is really hard to embrace. Because some of you have been told all your life, you're a mistake. You're a mistake. You weren't planned. You're a mistake. And if you're the younger sibling, you've been told that by your older sibling at some point. Like, they didn't mean to have you. Like, I, they wanted to have me, but they didn't really mean to have you. Like, so everybody, everybody's, everybody's heard that. And, and unfortunately, some people hear that from a parent in a moment of anger or a moment of rage or a moment of drunkenness. Well, I didn't want you anyways. You're a mistake. Those wounds stick with you. When other people are insecure and other people are unhappy about themselves, one of the outlets that they look is to try to bring other people down. That's why all of us who've survived middle school deserve an award, because it's the most awkward time of our lives. And for those of you who are in middle school right now, it's okay. Just keep going. Life will get better. I promise. But man, it's awkward. Your, your body's weird. Your friends are all turds. You don't want anybody to know that you've got parents. I'm just being honest. You don't want anybody to know that you've got parents. And so you're trying to, you're trying to figure out, like, oh, what, is, what is my life? Like, what is this? And some, most people progress past that, and they realize, wow, that was a really immature part of my life, but some people never do. And they carry this toxic mentality that they just need to go around, they just need to discourage everybody, they just need to drag everybody else down. And the way they do that is they go about trying to find flaws in everybody else's life, and they just highlight those flaws constantly, and maybe those, have, maybe those words have stuck with you. Maybe those words have stuck with you and they've, they've allowed your self-image to become not who God created you to be, not what God made you, but you, they've allowed your self-image to become what somebody else said about you because they're insecure about themselves and their own life. And I just, I, church, you've got to hear me and you've got to remember that you were designed by God. God did not make a mistake. You have a purpose. God has a plan for your life and he knit you together. God's fingerprints are all over you as an individual and as a unique person. God made you 
and he loves you. And what's the response to all this? He says, I praise God. I praise God because he's God. Yep. I praise God because of all the greatness that he's done. Yep. I praise God because of all the wonderful ways that God has worked. Yep. I praise God because of me. Yep. And we, we might scratch our heads at that. We might be like, what? Is, is that right? And it is. It says, I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not that we worship ourselves, but that we recognize that every single one of us as an individual is a picture of an active and working God who designed us with a plan and designed us with a purpose, and that is why we have intrinsic value. And he goes on and he says, every one of my days, every one of our days is written in God's book. The God, as the author of life, knows how the story ends. So I want to talk to some of you right now who have a level of fear because you're waiting for a test or waiting for a test result. Or maybe the results come in and it's terminal. And maybe it's not you, but maybe it's a family member. And now you have to work through the process that there are months or weeks or days left. It's not a question of, of if anymore. It's just a question of, of when. And it never really was a question of if. It always was a question of when. But that doesn't make it any easier. Because now the reality is staring you in the face. And this isn't meant to, to mean that that's going to be an easy process. Death is never easy. It isn't meant to say that there's nothing, there's nothing to feel sad about. There's always a sense of sadness with loss. But this is a reminder that none of these circumstances, none of these results, none of these, none of these diagnoses catches God by surprise. And that there's nothing as a follower of Jesus for you to fear. Because the God who's everywhere and the God who's intimately involved in the aspects of your life has also known the end chapter of your life before the story even began. And the same God who is good and who made you is just as good when the story ends as when it begins. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. David writes, God, I can't get over how great you are. I can't get over how great you are. I could never count all the ways you are great. It's like the sand on the beach. I could never count how great you are. And then right on the heels right on the heels of saying this, right on the heels of saying how great God is and saying, God, I can't wrap my head around it. You are so amazing. We go right into verse 19, which says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, I love David. He's like, God, you are so great. Now kill all the enemies. What? That's what he writes. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, here's a couple things. First, is when we reflect on the majesty of God and the goodness of God, it should cause us to react to those who oppose Him. It should cause us to react to those who oppose Him. And David's like, I hate those who oppose Him. Second, this should give us immense freedom. This should give us immense freedom. Because how many of us try to, try to feel like, well, when we're, when we're praying or when we're just being honest with our, with our feelings in God, we're like, I need to sanitize that one a little bit. I'm not sure God can handle it. We don't say it like that, but that's the thought process of, oh, I need to sanitize that one before I pray about it, even though that's what I'm feeling, because I'm not sure God can. God already knows. He's everywhere. He's involved in your life. He already knows what you're thinking. So we have incredible freedom just to be authentic with our Creator. Just to process through those thoughts. And that's what we see here. There's no pretense. The pretense is gone, and this is just authenticity. And that's the freedom that we have. That we can be honest with God about our disappointment. We can be honest with God about our frustration. And we don't have to try to find all the perfect words to do it. We can just be real. And we might as well be anyways, because God already knows. And then he adds this qualifier. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. On the heels of declaring his hatred for his enemies, he invites God to know his thoughts and his heart. There's no hiding. He's being authentic. He's just, here it is. God, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm processing. And understand, God is big enough to work through your emotions with you. You don't have to hide them. You don't have to fake them. But notice what he says. God, search my heart and show me any area of my life that doesn't bring you glory and then transform me. Show me those areas. And this is one of the, this is one of the greatest evils of social media right now. Is just the echo chamber that it's become. And you have to applaud everything that everyone does. And people air out their stupid decisions with, with, no, with no hesitation whatsoever. And everybody's like, you go, you do you. I mean, go on a mommy blog sometime. You go on to a mommy blog and it's like, had a rough day, dropped the kids off at school and then decided to join Al-Qaeda and then picked them up and brought them home. And the comments is going to be like, way to go, mama. You do you. I'm so proud of you for living your truth. Woo! Like that's what social media has become right now. Just an echo chamber of everybody just encouraging stupidity and stupid decisions because God forbid there be any truth. And he's like, no, that's not the point. He said, God, search my heart, but show me the ugly in me, because it's there. And it's in my life, and it's in your life. And what I need, God, is for you to just show me what's there and transform me. Not that I celebrate the ugly, but that I change the ugly. Change me, God. God knows our every thought. We can't outrun Him. 
We can't flee from him. We can't escape him. We can't hide. When I was in middle school, I went to camp. And one of the games that they played at camp was a war game. We dressed up in camo, and I didn't have any, so I had to borrow some. We painted our faces. We talked strategy. You'd have five different generals all, all given different stars. And then you'd go, and you'd have to hide in the woods. And then other people on your team would have to go find the generals. And if they were captured, they'd be taken to jail. And if not, then they could find the generals and bring them to jail. And then whoever captured the most generals won the game. And when I was in middle school, this was a really big deal. I had camo on, had boots on, had face paint. It was a, it was a major deal. Around 15, 20 years later, I was speaking at, at some Christian camps, and one of the things that you do is interact with the students during the week, and spoiler alert, they were playing war games, because apparently they haven't changed up the curriculum in 15 to 20 years. <laughs> and whereas in seventh grade, I was worried about camo and face paint and strategy and, and chasing after everybody, fast forward 15, 20 years, I wasn't chasing after anybody. And I was standing out in the woods, but in a place there weren't many bugs, and if you wanted me to hop across the creek, there was no way because there is nothing more miserable than soggy socks. I am telling you, it doesn't matter how good your day's going. The second you get a soggy sock, it's over. And it is a horrible day from that point forward. Soggy socks are the worst. And I just wasn't going to do any soggy socks. It wasn't worth it to me. Whereas when I was in seventh grade, no obstacle was too great for me to overcome. Fast forward 15, 20 years, any obstacle is too great for me to overcome. I'm just going to hang out and be comfortable. Check this out. For those of you who are, who are dating right now, pursuing somebody, think about this. What are the obstacles that stop that process? What are the obstacles? Every obstacle. Uncertainty, distance, darkness, lack of understanding. Any of those things are brought into the equation. And we stop the pursuit. What's fascinating is everything that would stop us from pursuing someone, whether that's uncertainty or distance or darkness or lack of understanding, is not an obstacle with God. That He moves all those obstacles out of the way so that we can have a relationship with him. That Jesus came to take care of our greatest obstacle, that is our sin. And he paid the price and the penalty for our obstacle and took it away. And he knows the details of your life, the good and the bad the best of you, and the ugliest parts of you. And he loves you anyway. Jesus, I pray. I pray, God, that we would just realize the value that we have. As people you've created. 
I pray for the person who's here and who's watching today online and who is starting to really struggle with this concept and this idea because all their life they've been told they're a mistake. All their life they've been told what's wrong with them. All their life they've heard nothing but negative messages. And God, I pray today is the day that your spirit gets a hold of their heart and louder than all of that noise conveys to them their value and their worth. I pray you'd encourage their heart. I pray, God, for the person that's never surrendered their life to you. Never experienced the intimate connection that you want to have with them. And God, I pray today would be the day even in, the, even in this moment in their heart, God, they would just cry out, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need you. Realize you died on the cross for me and you rose again three days later providing a way for me to have a relationship with you. And I pray, God, in this moment right now, eternities would be changed. I pray for the person who's processing through the end chapter. There's nothing left they can do. And I pray, God, that you would help them remember that while there's uncertainty and there's sorrow, every time there's loss, that the same God who is good in the beginning of the story is good in its end. And I pray for families who are having to coordinate and navigate these discussions. Give them wisdom. Help us remember, God, that we are loved by you. We are seen by you. And you created us with a purpose. Jesus, help us live for you. In your name we pray.